0: Turning your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11. We're going to finish the section on the Lord's Supper today. Last week we looked at the part 1 of what the title of the Lord's Supper, part 1. Today we will cover part 2. And our key words for your worshippers and training are Unworthy Manner, Examine, and Judged. I want to read... Verses 17-34, through 34. you'd follow along. But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come." So last week we looked at the first, or verses 17 through 26, and as, as I said, Paul is dealing with uh, another issue that this church has gotten wrong. This is a troubled church, this church in Corinth, um, they were constantly in a turmoil and re- in, in, in disagreements and factions and uh, divisions amongst them, and we've covered that uh, several times up to this point, and here again. As we come to chapter 11, it's still there. And as Paul begins chapter 11, he says, I do commend you Uh, in verse 2. He says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So he starts off in, in speaking about this broad context of worship that he's going to be dealing with in chapters 11 through 14 with a commendation. But then he gets down to verse 17 and he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together. When you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. And so Paul begins this section with a very strong rebuke and a much-needed rebuke because these people uh, were attending their their love feasts, which we talked about last week, which the Lord's Supper was a part of, uh, with great division and great animosity towards each other. So this is a strong rebuke that Paul is laying out for them. Remember these love feasts in the early church as was custom in, in the very early church. If you read Acts 2, you see that they were uh, partaking and breaking of bread every day. It was said of them that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the, to the breaking of bread, fellowship, and the prayers. this was said of this church. And so this church was very much uh, lo- in love with one another. They had they had come to faith in Christ. God was drawing people to Himself through the preaching of the apostles in Jerusalem. And, and great love and affection was surrounding this early church. And so they, they, they could not go otherwise but to meet daily with one another and express that love with one another in their communal meals. And they came to be known as love feasts. And what these were is that people would come together from all the church, from the haves to the have-nots, would come together in a home, of probably a more uh, well-to-do member of that church and would share their meals together. They would share their food and their drink together and their community together and all the things that, uh, that they had in common. And then at the very end of this, this festivity, they would have the Lord's Supper, uh, which, as we know, Christ instituted for the church, one of the ordinances of the church that He gave on the night when He was betrayed. He, he, he transitioned or changed the Passover uh, into the Lord's Supper to be a perpetual remembrance of Christ's death. And so that's what Paul is dealing with in verses 17 through 26. He starts off with uh, laying out to them how they had perverted the Lord's Supper. It had become a, a perversion. It was not the Lord's Supper, as he said, uh, that they were eating. They thought they were coming together to eat uh, he says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You think that you're participating and communing with the Lord and communing with His people, but that's not at all what you're doing. You're doing the opposite. And so He's telling them that they have perverted this sweet ordinance. But, and so in order to show them how far they had perverted it, He lays out in verses 23 through 26 the proper observance of the Lord's Supper. And He shows them in a way to preserve it. And in order to give them the proper purpose of it, He lays out, where Jesus uh, takes these elements, this bread and this wine, and he and he and he transforms them into symbols, in, the, in so to speak, and says the bread represents his sacrificial life, the Lord Jesus Christ becoming incarnate, God Himself becoming man, uh, in order to 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 seek and save those who were lost. And so Jesus came and lived a sacrificial. Uh, and and gave His life as a sacrificial offering, a substitute for all of those who would believe. And so that's what Jesus says is the bread represents His body. And then He also took the cup after supper, which He said the cup was actually the third cup of the Passover meal, which was the cup of thanksgiving. And so Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. And and so at Jesus' death, we know that the old covenant was done away with, and the new covenant was brought in. A better covenant, a covenant made upon better promises. And so this is what Jesus says, My blood that is shed for you is this uh, this blood that ratifies this new covenant. And so whenever they would drink the, the wine in the cup, it would represent the blood of Christ that was shed for them in this new covenant that they were now a part of. And so this is what Jesus is doing in the first part, or excuse me paul is doing in the first part of this uh, of this text from 17 to 26 is giving them uh showing them that they had greatly perverted this this holy ordinance and he's showing them what it should look like and then he goes on in verse 27 he returns back to the argument that he was making in verses 18 through 24 cuz or 22 he says Whoever therefore, in verses 27, we're going to now begin to go through it. Whoever therefore. So we know he's turning back. It indicates that Paul is now resuming his main discussion from verse 22. And furthermore, he's drawing a conclusion from what he has said and giving an explanation to his teaching on showing them that they had so far strayed from the proper observance of this ordinance. And so now he's going to deal with this third point that I said last week was the preparation for the Lord's Supper. They had got it wrong. They were not loving one another. They were not showing affection for one another, and they were they were misusing this ordinance. And so now how do they get it right? And so Paul's going to deal with that in verses twenty seven through thirty-four. He says, verse twenty seven Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner Will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Well, for starters, we see, and it's it's kind of obvious here that the Lord's Supper can be taken in an unworthy manner. But for a long time, earlier translations, and you might have, if you have a copy of the King James Version today, you'll see that it says unworthily there instead of unworthy manner. Now the difference may not seem that great, but it is, because you see, to talk about someone doing something unworthily suggests that one has to be a certain kind of individual or possess a certain quality called worthiness in order to participate in the Lord's Supper. The word rendered unworthily in the King James or unworthy manner is not an adjective describing the condition of the one actually partaking of of communion, but it's an adverb describing the manner in which one partakes the Lord's Supper. You understand the difference there? Because... If we're sitting there trying to determine whether or not I'm worthy to come to the Lord's Supper, the first thing we must all automatically declare upon ourselves is that we are not worthy to come to the Lord's table in and of ourselves. We have no worth in ourselves. No, our, righteous, our righteousness, the Bible says, is what? Filthy rags before Him. And so we have no worthiness of ourselves to declare. We have no righteousness to bring to the table. The righteousness that we stand in that has made us just in the eyes of God is the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to us. And we never add or detract from that. When we come before God in prayer or in life or especially in the Lord's table, we come in the righteousness of Christ Himself. That's why the blood of the new covenant is is, the blood, is is ratified a covenant that is much better than the old covenant. It was made on better promises because the old covenant could not be kept because of our sinfulness. And so, tragically, this misunderstanding has for many years sent people on a never-ending quest to root out and discover every unconfessed sin, to engage in endless bouts of self-scrutiny in order to unearth whatever might be hidden in the dark recesses of our conscience that would render one unworthy in participating in the supper. The result of that sort of thinking has been that the very people who most need to come to the Lord's table... The very people who most need to be here and participate in the Lord's table are the ones who don't because they feel they're not worthy to partake. They feel they're not worthy to, to avail themselves of this, of this ordinance that Christ has set that nourishes our souls, that feeds our faith. And so the table of mercy for, for many of us over the years has become an inaccessible table, a table of judgment and reproof instead of a table of mercy and grace. And so the better translation here is unworthy manner, with the word, the word signaling more properly, that the emphasis is not on whether a certain quality like worthiness is present in us, but whether certain other realities are true about us. Realities that have more to do with one's perception and one's attitude or one's perspective. You see, the sin of the Corinthians for which divine discipline was imposed, we'll look at in a moment, was related to the manner in which the Lord's Supper was being taken. The unworthy manner of partaking in the Lord's Supper is not framed in terms of their vertical relationship to God. Paul says nothing here in this text about how the Corinthians were relating to God. No, Paul's warning against eating and drinking in an unworthy manner is framed in terms of their horizontal relationship He frames His warning within the context of how they were relating to one another. That's very key here. And so He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does He mean by that? Jesus gave Himself body and blood so that others might live. Jesus gave Himself. He sacrificed Himself as a substitute so that we might live. These well-to-do Corinthians could not even share their food and drink together with their brothers and sisters who were less fortunate. So to understand all that is true of Jesus' sacrificial death for you and me, and then to act in a way that is contrary to that sacrifice, is to despise it. So in other words, what these Corinthians were doing were making an open mockery of this substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus laid Himself on the cross voluntarily so that you and I would live. The greatest act of self-sacrifice in the history of the world. And so to partake of these elements, to partake of the elements of Holy Communion, you are, uh, you are uh, saying and stating that I understand this. I understand this sacrifice that was given for me. And then the way these Corinthians were acting in their loveless acts towards each other was repudiating their very own statements of saying, I understand what these elements mean. And so they were guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. They were as guilty as the people who cried out, Crucify Him in Jerusalem. They were just as guilty because they had put it to an open shame, as the the Bible says. And so Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So what should be done? What do we do here? Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's the answer. Examine yourself. The word examine, and most of all of, the, all of these verbs in these three verses are actually present tense imperative verbs. Present tense meaning continuous or habitual action taking place. And so Paul says, Let a person continuously examine himself then, and then so eat, and bre- eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul said later in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. What does he mean by that? What test? It's the test of faith. Does your walk line up with your profession? Is your faith the faith of demons or is it the faith that works and acts and loves? Not in order to gain that faith, but as a result of that faith. Faith is what God justifies us by. It is through faith that God justifies us and makes us right with Him. But it is not a faith that just stands alone there. It's a faith that goes on and acts itself out in years and years to come. And so Paul is saying, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. What test? The Scriptures. The standards of Christ and the apostles that He have laid out for us to live by. That's the test. That's the test. That's the standard that we live under and that's what we examine ourselves through. That is the, the mirror that James says that we look into to reveal ourselves to us, our proper selves, our true selves. And so Paul in verse 28 of chapter 11 is saying, let a person examine himself then and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Corinthians, you are, you are perverting this, this, this ordinance. You have ignored the less fortunate. You are not showing the love of the Father to them. And so he's saying, Examine your life in light of your profession, and then you may eat of drink of the cup. Why is it so important that we do this? Oh before I get into that, let me let me backtrack here. This is not just some ritual that you perform either. Just not some ritual that you perform five minutes before you partake of the ordinance. As I said, this examine here is in the present tense. It means continuously. This is what you are continuously doing. You're examining your life. If you come to the Lord's table and you say a quick prayer five minutes before you eat the bread and drink the cup saying, Lord, forgive me, and your life does not line up to that, then you are a hypocrite. Your profession does not line up with your words. And so Paul is saying here, examine yourselves before you eat and drink of the cup. Why is this important? Because this is a holy ordinance. Verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. What happens if we don't properly examine ourselves? If we are living this hypocritical life, we drink judgment upon ourselves. What does Paul mean there when he says, "And For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, verse 29. Commentators have usually put forth two possibilities of what he's talking about here. He either could be talking about the literal body of Christ Himself, the body and blood of Christ who had been sacrificed for them upon the cross that's one, ver- one, one possibility, the other possibility is that he's talking about the body of believers, which is the body of Christ. It could be that it has a double meaning here, but I think the main emphasis is that it is on the body of Christ, him, the, the body of Christ of believers. because as we get down in verses 33 and 34, we'll get it to in a moment. he says, "What is the solution that Paul tells to give them to straighten this that thing out?" He says, "So then my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another." The issue is how they're relating to one another again. That horizontal relationship, that lack of love that they were showing towards one another. And so when Paul says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, I believe he's talking about the body of believers, the body of Christ primarily. And he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning this body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Do we have hierarchies in the body of Christ? As far as our standing before God, our worth before God? No, we do not. In the function of the church, as in the function of the family, we have different roles that we operate under that God has given us. But ontologically, as we stand before God, as far as who we are in our being, we are all equal before Christ. There is none greater, there is no worse, because as I said a while ago, how are we made just in the sight of God? by our own good works, by our own intelligence, by our own actions, by our own service, none of that. We are made right in the eyes of God through the righteousness of Christ that was wrought out on the cross, that, 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 that exchange that happened on the cross where God put our sin upon His body on the cross and nailed it to the cross and He takes His righteous life that He lived and credits it to our account as if we lived it ourselves. Does that not blow your mind? And so that there is no there are no hierarchies in the in the body of Christ in that sense. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross. And so these Corinthians were not acting in that manner. The well the have the haves were 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 distancing themselves from the have nots. They were not allowed into the better part of the home. They were not given the, the better parts of the meal. And some of them were not giving anything at all. They were going hungry and, no, and nothing to drink. And so some of the, the halves were, getting, were drinking so, so much they were getting drunk and, and stuffing their bellies with their food. And so there was, no, there was no showing forth of that equality that the cross gives us in their actions. And so he's saying there, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, without understanding that we all stand equal before the foot of the cross, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What type of judgment is he talking about here? Well, I don't think he's talking about eternal judgment. Because he says in verse 32 that when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. And So there's a little insight into what he's talking about here. He's actually not talking about the judgment of unbelievers. He's talking about the discipline of God upon His own people. So a failure to discern the body, a failure to love has brought on this judgment upon some of them. And it says that, that Paul explains it further in verse 30, that is why many of you were weak and ill, and some have died. You see a progression from bad to worse. Some of them were weak. Some of them were worse off. They were ill. And some were even worse off than that. They had died. And so we look at that and we say, what is going on here? Are you saying that some people died? Because of God's disciplining hand, and I yes, that's what He's saying. That's exactly what He's saying. Scripture speaks of three different types of God's chastening or discipline that He gives that He puts upon His own people. The first primary level we see of it is that internal chastening, and this level God deals with us in our hearts, and nobody knows it, is happening except us. If God is disciplining you at this moment, that is the best way to have your problem solved. That is, that, is that, that daily, almost hourly correction that we receive. I hope we're receiving. The daily struggle with sin as the Holy Spirit is working in our lives and making us more like Christ. That's that internal chastening as we, as we sin against Him and each other. His Word, I have hidden Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. The Word is is the instrument that God uses, the Holy Spirit uses to bring that chastening when we do sin. And is there anybody in this room who does not go through a day without this internal chastening? I don't think there's anyone like that. It's not possible. Because we all sin. Another level that God uses to chasten us and discipline us is external chastening. In this level, the consequences of our sin become obvious because God's discipline becomes, goes public. Jonah is as an example of that. As he was running from God, he experienced the chastening hand of God by having to spend three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And then we see the other the final state that we see here. Is terminal chasing. And in this level, God calls the believer home prematurely. And I say prematurely, not prematurely in his, in his, from his standpoint because nothing is premature to God. But there were people in this church who had so perverted the gospel, had so perverted the sacrifice of Christ, we're acting in such ungodly ways that God saw no other way to deal with them but to bring them home to Himself by taking their life from them. We've seen other people in the Bible, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. I'm not 100% sure they were believers, but they were chastened by losing their life. Achan in the Old Testament, when he stole the things from the from before the battle of Ai and Joshua has to go out and look for who who is it that's brought on this calamity to the nation and it was found out that it was him. He lost his life. And so Paul says here that if you eat and drink without discerning the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself and that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In verse 31, he says, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. How do you, what do you think about when you think about discipline? <laughs> That's usually a four-letter word, right? We don't like that. Our children don't like it. We especially don't like it. It's painful. It rubs us raw. It rubs us the wrong way. It requests, it requires and requests things of us, and so we don't like it. But we should love it. Because the Scriptures promote it that way, that we should love it. Because it is from the loving hand of our Heavenly Father that He brings it. And he says, how do you, how do you keep yourselves from this severe, ju- this severe discipline? He says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. That goes back to the first level of chastening, right? The one that we, are all, we all come in contact with every day, that internal chastening. If we respond to that in faith and obedience, it stops there, right? Because the purpose of that chastening... Is to, make a, is to set, the, set the, the issue right. Whatever sin it is that we are involved in, we recognize it and repent of it, and then walk in obedience. That's what God's up to. So if we walk through life in that manner, if we're judging our own actions in that light, then we should, we should not have to face these other severe judgments, these other severe disciplines. But he says in verse 32 just to, to reassure us what God's up to. Verse 32, he says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's why you should love it. That's why you should love it. Do you understand the condemnation that's coming to the world? Do you understand what that is? That's eternal separation from God's goodness and his mercy and his kindness. And it is it is eternity up underneath the wrath of god being poured out upon you that is the condemnation of the world that is the condemnation of those who don't know christ it's awful but that's but god is not does not have that for us he says when we're judged by the lord we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Hebrews chapter 12 explains God's discipline better than anywhere else. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You're undergoing a training regimen by God. God has an exercise program for every one of us that He is putting us through every day. And it's called... Holiness. He's not looking to make us buff, muscular, fit physically. He's looking to make us righteous. Holy. And, it does, and, it's, and it's painful. When we go through it, it's painful. It's not pleasant. But it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. The question is, is that what you want for your life? Is that what you want for your life? Because if it's not, then you are going to undergo a tougher time getting there. But nonetheless, God has promised that He will get us there. It's not optional. It's not optional. He's going to get us there. Some of us harder than others. But nonetheless, He gets us there. Psalm 118.18 says, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. (laughs) Did you hear what he's saying? He's disciplined me severely, but He's not given me over to death. Sometimes we feel like we're about to die, right? We feel like it's so bad, it can't get any worse. Condemnation of the world. Compare it to that. It's not that bad. And God has a purpose for it that He's bringing us to. And so that's the answer. If we judge ourselves truly, we should not be judged. And then he says in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. Their problem was a lack of love in their love feasts. There was no love in their love feast, It was just feast. That's their problem. And so Paul is giving them a practical, tangible way to straighten that out, to apply the things that he's laying out before them. Don't come here and indulge yourselves for the sake of food and drink. If you can't do otherwise, stay home. Eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. He's not telling them to stay away from the Lord's table. God's people are commanded to come to the Lord's table. But He's saying, make it right. You are are going through the disciplined hand of God because of this. Make it right. And so what do we gather from this this morning? Because we are about to partake of the Lord's table in a few moments. What do we gather from this? How do we approach this this morning? As I said, this examination that we do for ourselves as we prepare for the Lord's table is not some ritual that we go through five minutes before we partake and then we walk away from here forgetting it and living as if it never happened. You can't get God on a technicality. Do you know that? You can't get God on a technicality. You can't just go through some rote confession of sin as you sit in this room as you are about to partake of these elements and think that that stands for examining yourself. Paul is saying examine yourself continuously. Look at your life Maybe it was true of some of these Corinthians that, that, that some of them were not believers because he says uh, earlier in um, verse 19, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Some of these people probably were not Christians. But the ones who were being judged here are the Christians because he says, when you receive the discipline of the Lord, it's so that you will not be condemned along with the world. And so this is a holy ordinance that Christ that Christ has ordained for us to participate in. And so it is only for God's people. And who are God's people? It is those who struggle with sin in their life, whose desire is for righteousness. As I said a while ago... when many people have gotten the wrong connotation over the years of, of participating in an unworthy manner as if they, they okay i had a rough week I, I i had a bad i had a bad episode with a coworker or i had a, a argument with my wife this morning and so i should not come and partake of the elements you are the very one who needs to come if you are struggling with the fact that you you send in that way The people who are not to partake of the Lord's table are those who are not the Lord's primarily, but also those, who, those whose lives are just rank hypocrisy. And so if you agree with Paul when you look at your life and you say, the things that I desire to do, those are the very things that I don't do. The things that I hate to do, those are the things I see myself doing. If that's your cry, then I think you are... You are ready to participate in a, in a worthy manner because your heart is right with God because you see the struggle in your life. You hate your sin. God is not asking for perfect people to come to His table because there are none. Christ instituted this ordinance because we are imperfect. Because we need nourishment from our souls. We need to be reminded over and over and over that we have been redeemed from sin and that our Savior is a great Savior. And that his grace is renewed every day for us. And that we, when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, we can cry out and say, I am that person. And so when we come to the Lord's table this morning, we need to keep in mind a few things. First and foremost, when the, Lord, the Lord's table, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, keeps the gospel at the center of the church. It keeps the gospel at the center of all that we do. The preached word is the, is the word spoken this morning. When we come to the Lord's table, this will be the visible word that we will partake in. We will see the gospel in these elements. We will touch them. We will feel them. We will smell them. We will taste them. They will remind us of Christ's sacrifice for us. Another thing that we see is that the Lord's table was a key part in the lives of those in the early church. As I said a while ago in Acts chapter 2, they were doing this daily. They were participating in their love feast daily. And so it was something that was very vibrant and meaningful to their lives. Is it a key part of our lives? It is a command, but it is an invitation from the Lord Jesus Himself. He is the host. This is not just any meal. When we pray in a moment and ask God's blessing upon this, these elements will become sacred in a sense that this ordinance will become sacred and holy. As I said last week, nothing magical happens here. Nothing mystical happens here. These elements do not become the literal body and blood of Christ. Christ is presently in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. In His body, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, He will be present. And that leads us to the other one. It is communion with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's asking that rhetorically, and the answer is Yes. We are participating with Christ. We are communing with Him. We are also communing with one another because this ordinance has been given to the church. And we are the church. This building is not the church. We are the church. And so when we come together, this binds us together. It's a communal meal for us. It reminds us also that Jesus was given for us. Verse 24. I want you to look at this. Verse 24 of chapter 11. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Think about that. Christ gave Himself for you and for me. And so when we partake of this, when we eat the bread in a moment, we're reminded, we're participating with Christ in the sense that we, we understand and we're reminded that Christ is given for us. Given for us. The Lord's table also speaks of forgiveness. Do you understand the forgiveness that you, sh- that you have in Christ Jesus? Do you understand the forgiveness that is offered if you are not in Christ Jesus? The forgiveness from your sin, past, present, and future, is offered in the gospel. And so, as we remember Christ's sacrifice, as we, in his body, and as we remember the blood that was spilled that ratified the new covenant, we understand that that blood was spilt because we needed forgiveness. God cannot look favorably upon sin. Either He will judge sin upon you or me, or He will judge it upon His Son. But it will be judged. And so those of us who are in Christ, our sins have been forgiven and we have been forgiven. We also need to recognize that this is a time of great thanksgiving. Many churches call this the Eucharist. Eucharist in Latin means thanksgiving. How could it be anything else other than that? Think about it. Christ given for you the hope of glory. Forgiveness that is granted to you. How could we not be thankful? How could our hearts not swell up with joy as we are thankful because we know that we don't deserve any of this? We are not worthy. But Christ is worthy and we are thankful. And then finally, it, 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 it focuses, uh, focuses us on looking to the future. The glorious hope of the return of Christ. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Christ told the disciples when He on that night He was betrayed, He said, I will not drink the fruit of this vine with you until it is fulfilled. Until, until His return. Until that great day when He takes part in the marriage supper of the Lamb and that great feast with all of His believers. And So that's our hope. That's what we look forward to. That's what we walk through day to day. Understanding. That what, what we have before us in our lives, the things that we accumulate, the, the, the knowledge that we have, the giftedness that we have, it's all temporary. Eternity awaits us. A great eternity as we will share with Christ Himself. And God says we will see Him as He is. We see through a glass dimly now. We can't, we can't see things clearly now. I have a window in my bathroom. It's one of those windows you can't see in or out of. It just lets light in. And that reminds me every day when I walk in there that that's how, that's how, that's how life is. It lets some light in, but I cannot see through it and nobody else can see through it the other way. That's how we live our life. We see through a glass dimly. But when Christ returns, the hope of glory, we will see Him as He is. The scales of sin and death and frustration and all the things that we struggle with will be wiped away. That's why the Bible says there will be no tears in heaven. There will be no need for them. Because we will see Him as He is. That's our hope. And so that's why we continuously do this over and over and over. We come to the table and, and Hopeful expectation of Christ's return. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a year from now. It could be a hundred years from now. And so that's our hope. That's our joy. And so now as we come to feast upon Jesus Christ, not upon some mystical transformation in the elements on the table before us, but through faith, looking to Jesus Christ, remembering Him in the Incarnation, His righteous life, His substitutionary death at the cross, and His eternal satisfaction of God's eternal justice for, uh, for, for us. Let us look to Christ and remember with deepest satisfaction that He alone can forgive us of our sins and give us new life that never ends. Let us as kingdom citizens having been purchased and redeemed to be part of His kingdom through the blood of Christ, worship Christ in this kingdom meal that we call the Lord's Supper. And So again, if you are a kingdom citizen, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come. Let us pray. Father, we thank You as we contemplate the death of our Savior, as we, as we come now to the communal meal, Lord, we are thankful for this opportunity. We are thankful for this ordinance that Christ has instituted that we may over and over and over reflect and be nourished upon the death of our Savior and upon the benefits that that has wrought to us, Father. We are thankful for forgiveness We are thankful, God, that we will not be condemned with the world. And so, Father, now I ask Your blessing upon these elements. I ask Your blessing upon this time, this meal, Father, as we participate as Your kingdom children. As we come to the table, God, we ask that You would bless us through the power of the Holy Spirit to commune with Christ and that our faith would be strengthened, our ties would, that would bind us would be strengthened, Lord, we love You and we thank You for Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.